Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. On the program today, I'll be speaking with Judy Rebeck, and she'll be giving us her analysis of the protests against prorogement of Parliament that occurred this past weekend all across Canada. You'll be hearing about a conversation between Paul Jackson, a young Montreal writer, and Villemont Derelcine, a young, remarkable man from Haiti. Also in Haiti, we'll speak to Roger Annis, who is the coordinator of the Canada-Haiti Action Network. We'll have the alert headlines. Music is the weapon. And around the left. And now the alert headlines for the week of January 28, 2010. Demonstrations and rallies were held in some 60 cities and towns across Canada on January 23rd to oppose the Conservative government's shutting down of Parliament for two months. This was the second time in one year that the Conservatives used prorogation to extricate themselves from political difficulties. The rallies were organized after an Alberta University student created a group on the social networking website Facebook called Canadians Against Proroguing Parliament, which quickly became a rally point for Canadians who were against Harper's decision to suspend Parliament until March, rather than having it reconvene on January 25th, as had been scheduled. The group's membership quickly swelled. It currently has more than 212,000 members. Canada's Conservative government recently announced that after decades of support, Canada was ceasing to aid the UN Relief and Works Agency. Founded in 1949, the agency is the primary organ to provide aid to Palestinian refugees scattered around the world. Canada has traditionally provided 4% of the agency's overall budget. Critics have said the decision represents a cruel break from Canada's traditionally supportive and humane position on Palestinian refugees. Canadian civil society organizations are demanding full transparency from the Harper government as a second round of Canada-European Union free trade talks wraps up in Brussels, Belgium. The organizations, which include the Council of Canadians, Canadian Auto Workers Union, Sierra Club Canada, Canadian Union of Postal Workers, Canadian Union of Public Employees, and National Union of Public and General Employees, say the Canada-EU Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement jeopardizes public services, sustainability, social policy, and local democracy. National Chairperson of the Council of Canadians, Maud Barlow, says people around the world are demanding tougher climate and health protections, not an expansion of discredited laissez-faire capitalism. Hamas's most senior representative in the West Bank, Aziz Dwak, has said Hamas has accepted Israel's right to exist. His latest remarks were made during a meeting he held in Hebron with British millionaire David Martin Abrams, who maintains close ties with senior Israeli and British government officials. Dwek also expressed Hamas's desire to engage in dialogue with the international community, first and foremost the European Union. He confirmed that Hamas was receiving financial aid from Iran, but said that this was the direct result of the boycott and sanctions against the movement. Haitian authorities say more than 150,000 bodies have been buried in Haiti since the devastating January 12th earthquake. Haiti's communications minister, Marie Lawrence Jocelyn Lassuguet, suggested the death toll could rise to 300,000. As many as 800,000 Haitians are now homeless in the capital of Port-au-Prince. 
To deal with the housing crisis, Haitian officials have announced plans to house 400,000 survivors in tent cities outside the capital. But the International Organization for Migration said it could take weeks to search out sites suitable for the tent cities. In Washington, a landmark Supreme Court ruling will allow corporations to spend unlimited amounts of money to elect and defeat candidates. In a 5-4 to four decision, the court overturned century-old restrictions on corporations, unions and other interest groups from using their funds to advocate for a specific candidate. Six cable television channels, including Radio Caracas Television, which is openly critical of President Hugo Chavez, have been taken off the air in Venezuela for not transmitting a speech by the president on Saturday. The channels were dropped by cable services yesterday after the state-run telecommunications agency accused them of violating Venezuelan law. The affected channels were among a total of 24 cable channels redefined by the government last week as national broadcasters. This means that by law they must transmit presidential addresses and government campaign materials. RCTV claims there was no prior notification of the move. In Bolivia, Evo Morales has been sworn in for a second term as president after winning a sweeping re-election victory in December. In his inauguration speech, Morales promised to launch state-run paper, cement, dairy and drug companies and develop Bolivia's iron and lithium industries. Morales also vowed to strengthen Bolivia's ties to other leftist governments in Latin America and to Iran. And those are the alert headlines for the week of January 28, 2010. And now for Around the Left for January 28, 2010. Louis Palou is a documentary photographer and filmmaker whose work has been published in the New York Times, the New Yorker, and the Globe and Mail, as well as has been broadcast on CBC and CTV. On January 28th, Palou will be giving a lecture on his photojournalistic coverage of Afghanistan. He was named the 2009 Canadian Photojournalist of the Year. The lecture is being held at the School of Image Arts at Ryerson University and begins at 6.30 p.m. on January 28th. On February 2nd, a public forum discussing Haitian relief will be held at the Centre for Social Justice in Toronto. The lecture will place the aftermath of the earthquake in the context of the past decade of Western policy towards Haiti. Justin Podour, Professor of Environmental Studies at York, and Dan Freeman Malloy, a Toronto-based activist and writer, will host the event. The forum begins at 7 p.m. at the Centre for Social Justice in Toronto. Last summer, MP Libby Davies participated in a Canadian-led delegation to the West Bank and Gaza to document the living conditions of Palestinians and to witness the devastation of Israel's war on Gaza. On January 30th, Davies will share her experiences and findings at the Islamic Centre of Southwestern Ontario in London, Ontario. Following the lecture, there will be an opportunity to ask questions and voice concerns. The event begins at 6 p.m. On February 13th, there will be a fundraising screening of Under Rich Earth, Malcolm Rogue's documentary about the struggle between the global mining corporation Ascendant and the people of Ecuador's Integ Valley. Proceeds from this event will help pay for the making of the film and to support two Ecuadorian community organizations that are featured in the film. DVD copies of the film will also be available to purchase. The screening begins at 6.30 p.m. at the Bloor Cinema in Toronto. A Q&A with director Malcolm Rogue will follow the screening.
Taking stock, the crisis and political change. This is the theme of the Studies in Political Economy annual conference held at Carleton University on January 29th. Featured speakers include Stephanie Ross and her lessons from the Toronto Activist Assembly, Greg Albo on the financial crisis, exit strategies, and political resistance, and Andrew Byro on the response of international financial institutions to the crisis. The conference begins at 1 p.m. in the Arts Lounge of Dunton Tower at Carleton University. And that was Around the Left for the week of January 28, 2010. Welcome, Judy, to Alert Radio. Thank you. Now, we want to hear about the cross-Canada demonstrations that took place over the weekend against the prorogation of Parliament. Uh, tell us something about where the demos were held and what the turnout was like, and who attended, of course. Sure. Well, they were held in 65 different uh, cities and towns across the country, and even in uh, you know, uh, London, England, and New York. And there was even one woman in Oman who went out in the desert with a flag. It was quite funny. Um, the 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 so because it was so decentralized because it was organized online that anybody who wanted to organize a demonstration could so it was just really tiny places like Newmarket which is a kind of suburb of Toronto had about a hundred people and um, it was right across the country you know some places were bigger than others but it was uh, you know a significant turnout in most places like you know I was in Toronto which was huge I, I would say it was close to ten thousand people although the media is of course reducing those numbers. And in uh, Ottawa, it was about 3,500 people. And then I think, you know, in other places, it was 1,500, you know. Um, I think there was a pretty good turnout in Calgary, in Edmonton. So right in Winnipeg, I heard there was 500. So right across the country, uh, there was uh, significant numbers. I think what was most significant was how many places organized demonstrations and who was there. Okay, and so tell us more about that. Who was there? Well, I mean... First of all, who organized it was mostly uh, young people in their 20s. In Toronto, that was entirely who it was, and I think across the country, that's mostly who it was. And um, in Toronto, I knew, you know, I know everybody. I've been an activist so long in all the movement sort of thing, and I only knew about 5% of the crowd, I would say, maybe 10%. Normally, like let's say in an Iraq demo or something like that, I'll know about half people. And in this one, um, I really knew very few people. A lot of people that I work with who never come to demonstrations came. Um, you know, pe- uh, quite a few people were there who had never come to another demonstration. I don't know if that was true across the rest of the country, but I know it was true here. And I think the amazing thing about it was that a lot of the people who organized it, some of them were activists, like student activists in particular, but others weren't. And it was just this incredible coming together on Facebook, which I don't think has ever happened. Like, I, I write in my book, uh, Transforming Power, I write about network politics and the way in which they've used um, this kind of horizontal organizing in Europe, mostly through cell phone texting, which, of course, cell phones are way cheaper in Europe, um, sort of flash mobs kind of thing. But I don't know of anybody who's ever used Facebook in quite this way, so that people, you know, the Facebook... Um, site, as everybody knows by now, grew exponentially, really fast. And within a week, uh, some of the people who were um, 
chatting with each other on the Facebook, said, well, why don't we have a march? And then they started organizing uh, for a demonstration. So you had what, what, you know, for Canada, I think, were quite significant-sized marches in an extraordinary number of cities organized in two weeks. Like, I've never seen anything like that happen. And there was not a single uh, organization behind it, like not the political parties, not the unions. In fact, all of them came quite late to support it. The unions, uh, you know, some union, I mean, there were union activists there, but the unions officially didn't, didn't do anything that I could see. Uh, you know, Labor Council sent out a, an email, but there was no uh, real mobilization effort by the unions or the political parties. And uh, yet we got all these numbers out. So, you know, I can only speak about Toronto, but in terms of what it felt like, but, you know, I'm an old rabble-rouser, right? Like, I do a whole thing with a crowd of call and response and chants and get people to feel their own power, which is what I think a rally is about. And I hadn't had that kind of uh, response from a crowd since the old pro-choice days. Well, Judy Rebick, what do you suppose it was about the prorogation of Parliament that spurred this action in this youthful generation, this uh, crowd? I think it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, you know? I, I think that people had been, you know getting more and more worried about Harper uh, around the way he treated Colvin. I think that was a major factor, was the whistleblower on Afghanistan. Well, not even a whistleblower. I mean, he just testified to Parliament about Afghanistan. I think people were concerned about some of the cuts, like to Cairo. There had been a lot of negative publicity about that um, because they're supportive of Israel. He cuts, uh, you know, calls a church coalition anti-Semitic. So I think people are getting concerned about that. And I, and I think that Harper was particularly what really uh, pissed people off was when Harper said, well, Canadians don't care. It was that arrogance. Um, certainly Christopher White, the guy who started the Facebook page, said that's what really bothered him. And uh, he's the one who put up the Facebook page. And, um, and I, think that, I, think, I think that's what it was. I think people just, just couldn't take anymore. And the, the fact that the prime minister... Um, um, you know, sort of thinks nothing of closing Parliament to avoid being accountable, I think is pretty frightening. And then what happened was a lot of experts, in constitutional experts, you know, that letter that came out from political science professors saying, like, this is serious, because in the British parliamentary system, it's really a noblesse oblige system. I mean, the only, there's, no, there's no real checks and balances. The only accountability is from Parliament. And the Prime Minister, if he starts ignoring Parliament or shutting down Parliament, there's really no checks on the Prime Minister. So I think that the combination of people who know what the danger is of that and people who are just um, angry at his arrogance and people who, um, who, who felt um, it was one thing after another. And also I think Copenhagen had a big impact. Like Canada was a pariah at Copenhagen, a real pariah. And I think people felt kind of bad about that, especially young people. Um, felt really, really hostile to the conservatives over that. And then, of course, you know, in come some student organizers who hate Harper to begin with anyway and uh, bring their skills into the whole thing. So. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. CanadianDimension.com slash alert. I'm Jeff Hughes, and we're speaking to Judy Rebeck. Her most recent book is Transforming Power from the Personal to the Political. And we're talking about the demonstration, spontaneous, it seems, that happened this past weekend against Stephen Harper's prorogation of Parliament. So it was on Facebook. Uh, what are they saying now? Is this a one-time thing? Is there oh, going no, to be not a... at all. They've got... 
They've got two new websites up. They've got a you know second round of CAP on Facebook, and then they've got um, another website which is called um, I'll have to get that for you, but um, it's a, a kind of forum to discuss what next, and um, and uh, you know they're discussing stuff uh, as to and, and then here in Toronto, I don't know if they're doing this in other places. They're having a, a a debrief on uh, Friday night. And the thing that's so great about it is, you know, they announced that to the whole rally. We're having a debrief Saturday night, so who, I mean, fr- Friday night. Whoever wants to come, uh, come. And they tell, uh, they tell them where it's going to be, or they tell them to look on the website, noparogue.ca, and find out where it's going to be. And, um, and this kind of openness, which, which I think, you know, uh, oh, it's called um, noparogue.whyweprotest.net. Uh, it's kind of a Judy, big name. Judy, does, does this mean you're Facebooking as we speak? Yeah, I'm looking at oh, the... Well, this isn't Facebook. This isn't a Facebook. <laughs> this is a website called noparogue.whywepost.net. Oh. My bad. Pardon me. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> now, so we can all go, presumably, and follow this, but I'd yeah. like to ask you, Judy, what huh. do you think should happen next uh, to uh, move forward with the agenda that uh, these young people have presented? Well, I'd like to see... Um, you know, a kind of democracy movement. I'd like to see, you know, the, the NDPs put forward a proposal that Parliament, the Prime Minister should have to get the approval of Parliament. I think that's a good proposal. You've got the, the thing about electoral reform, which I think is important. But I think probably the direction it'll go in is to pressure the opposition parties. Um, I, would, I, I would make a proposal that we pressure the opposition parties to have some kind of electoral alliance so that they they don't run it uh, against each other in certain ridings. I I don't think a coalition is very possible um, given Ignatieff's politics. But of course, you know, one of the things that I think makes people makes people the most angry, from what I can see, is the partisanship. So I think that if this movement develops um, and gets uh, keeps going, that it's going to put a lot of pressure on the political parties to stop being so partisan and to think about more how they can work together on a certain number of things. And that was the possibility with the coalition. Uh, of course, then you had a, a bit of a principled basis for it with, uh, Natch- with, um, with Stefan Dion, because he had, um, you know, at least he was good on the environment. I think Ignatius politics are terrible. But the worry I have, I mean, you know, none of these people seem to be uh, wanting to support Ignatius, that's for sure. None of them. In fact, uh, Christopher White himself, uh, he says he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to, um, he said in an interview in the Georgia Strait, he said, I don't want to substitute, uh, you know, a grumpy dictator for a, a smiling one. <laughs> That's how he sees Ignatius. We'll leave it on that note. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us on Alert Radio today, Judy Revin. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. Haiti needs emergency relief, not military intervention. This is the lead line of a petition being circulated by the Canada-Haiti Action Network. Roger Annis is the coordinator of the Canada-Haiti Action Network, and we contacted him in his office in Vancouver. Welcome to Alert Radio, Roger Annis. 
Well, thank you. It's good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Now, we'll get to your petition in a moment. But first, there are two very different pictures of the relief efforts underway in Haiti. The mainstream media is painting a picture of a magnanimous response of citizens, entertainers, doctors, paramedics, and relief organizations around the world, all of which we know to be true. On the other hand, critics are painting a picture of the U.S. using the calamity of the earthquake to take control of Haiti. In fact, one well-known author has called this, called this the fifth U.S. Of invasion of Haiti since 1915. Your comments, Roger Annis. Well, I think indeed that that's what it's looking like, and we're gravely concerned about the turn of events in Haiti. First, we've had uh, two weeks of, of failed emergency relief effort. I, I'm sorry to have to put it in, that, in those words, but when one considers that still to this day, even in the center of Port-au-Prince, just kilometers away from the airport, where all of the aid is being flown into, you have people living in the streets that haven't seen a doctor, haven't seen water or, or, or food, leave alone the outlying areas, and we're getting reports from all across the affected areas that are telling the same story, which is that there's been a failure to deliver prompt and life-saving medical and other humanitarian uh, supplies to, to the Haitian people. Um, we're also, of course, concerned, as you mentioned, about the military buildup and what the, the political agenda that seems to lie behind that. And both of these occurrences sadly fit the past pattern of conduct towards Haiti by the wealthy powers of the world. We're seeing history repeat itself. I'm very... Uh, I'm very sad and disappointed to say. On the former, what is going on with the Haitian government of René Preval? It seems to be non-existent. Well, you must remember, this is a government that comes out of a uh, a period of, of a two-year coup d'etat following 2004. So in the very best of circumstances, this is a government with, with limited powers, limited financing, limited legitimacy in some senses on the part of the Haitian people, although Preval himself was elected overwhelmingly by those who were able to, to vote in 2006. But Haiti's largest political party at that time, uh, which is the Famille Lavalasse party founded by Jean-Bertrand Aristide, was in a state of uh, de facto banning in 2006. It had been through the two-year, what we call the human rights violating regime, that followed the 2004 coup. And then uh, we've now had in the past year, that party has been officially banned from participation in elections in Haiti. And so, uh, you know, this government of, of René Preval was a very uh, limited government to begin with in its, in, its, uh, in its powers, in its financing, and really in its political legitimacy. And we've seen all of that uh, very gravely eroded uh, through uh, the events of, of the earthquake well, now your petition says that if reconstruction proceeds under the supervision of foreign troops and international development agencies, that it will not serve the interests of the vast majority of Haiti's populations. Now, why do you say that? Well, we base that on, on, on past experience, and we see nothing in the present circumstances that suggests that's changing. Uh, aid and, and trade have been used as a weapon by the uh, the big powers, especially the United States to the north, but increasingly by Canada and, and France, as a weapon against the Haitian people and their political and social and economic sovereignty. Uh, we have seen the systematic undermining of Haiti's national economy over these past decades. And uh, I say to, 
to uh, to people when I'm interviewed that the single largest cause of casualty in this earthquake are the policies of uh, forced importation into Haiti of subsidized agricultural products, particularly from the United States, but also from Europe. And what this has resulted in is a massive exodus of the the, the, the agricultural population into the cities because the land can no longer support a population. People, farmers cannot make a living by growing food because Haiti's markets are flooded with subsidized foreign food. Uh, Haiti used to grow all of its rice. Now it imports it all from the United States. And you can go down the list of, of food products. Over these past decades, Haiti has lost the capacity to, to feed itself. So we don't see any evidence of change in these kinds of policies. And in fact, what they're talking about, uh, what they were talking about at the Montreal conference yesterday, and what the, the, uh, the, 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 the mainstream media has been full of, is some idea that, that foreign investment that's based on the cheap labor in Haiti is going to resuscitate the national economy. And this is precisely what has driven Haiti to be in the, in the, in the terrible and difficult situation that it is today. So this is not a recipe for uh, taking Haiti forward in the, in the coming months and years. Well, your petition continues. We call on the de facto rulers of Haiti to facilitate, as the reconstruction begins, the renewal of popular participation in the determination of collective priorities and decisions. We demand that they do everything possible to strengthen the capacity of the Haitian people to respond to this crisis. Okay, that sounds good, but how do you propose this might happen, given the appearance of corruption and unaccountability that the Haitian government has? Well, I think the reports of corruption are, are, um, are mostly a folly. The Haitian government doesn't have much money to become corrupted with. Uh, of course, this is a dysfunctional government because it's been starved of funds. It's the product of a period of, of coup d'etat. Uh, the Haitian people have suffered two uh, violent overthrows of elected government in the past 25 years, first in 1991 and then in 2004, the second coup with the participation of, of soldiers from the United States, Canada, and France. So, of course, the government that would issue from that kind of experience is going to be weak. Uh, the, you know, there is not, uh, the, the, the problem of corruption is not the first problem in Haiti. The first problem is that those with the, uh, the resources to help Haiti reconstruct have not been respective of its sovereignty, have done everything to actually undermine its sovereignty, its capacity to make its own decisions, and really, in that sense, to actually create the conditions for for corruption. So this is really, the, you know, the term corruption is simply a, uh, a turn of phrase to deflect attention away from what is the most pressing problem in Haiti, which is that the foreign powers who could now help Haiti reconstruct have been, have been the architects of, it, of its destruction. And so it's going to take uh, a combination of, of, of a strengthening politically of the popular political movements in Haiti. And from our standpoint here, up here, uh, a, a much greater awareness on the part of uh, people living in Canada, the United States, and France, that can actually have some influence over the foreign policy of our governments. Because right now, we have uh, uh, our governments are running rampant in Haiti, and we were to date unable to uh, to prevent that from happening. And that's Haiti's biggest need right now, coming from from abroad, is for uh, people to become aware and engaged in the whole issue and strengthen the the capacity of the Haitian people to develop sovereign. Uh, political movements and sovereign political institutions that can take the country forward.
This is Alert Radio, CanadianDimension.com slash alert, and we're speaking to Roger Annis, the coordinator of the Canada-Haiti Action Network. Tell us about the popular movement in Haiti right now. Well, it's, uh, it's on its knees. We, it suffered a terrible, terrible humanitarian catastrophe, and now the country is flooded with uh, what's rapidly approaching 30,000 foreign soldiers, most, most of which are concentrated in the earthquake zone. Um, you know, this is a country where it's just a daily struggle to survive. Uh, most children don't go to school. Uh, most people don't have jobs. Uh, most people don't have electricity or clean drinking water. So, so there's a struggle to survive, which preoccupies all. But despite all that, the Haitian people have shown a capacity to, to forge uh, political movements, uh, a party even, that has a program and perspective for the country. They know what they need. And when you go to Haiti and talk to the people there, you get a, you get a very uh, clear uh, ideas and understanding of what their um, what their uh, projection for 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 the country is. Uh, so these movements will they will revive coming out of the um, kind of out of the earthquake experience. Of course, now it's it's all consuming to 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 survive to save lives and and uh, and so forth. But um, you know whether it's you know, trade unions or women's organizations or peasants' organization in the countryside. These have been struggling for rights in these recent years, and they will continue to do so, but now, sadly, under much more difficult circumstances. And that's where the, the solidarity and the, and, the, and the financial aid and assistance that can come from abroad to, uh, to supporting the popular movements in Haiti uh, becomes, becomes all the more important. Your petition also calls for the return of exiled President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Why is his return deemed to be so important? Well, first of all, it's an affront to Haiti's sovereignty that he should be living in exile. He was the elected president of the Haitian people, and as long as he is forced uh, to live in exile as he is today, then it's an ongoing sore on, the, uh, on, on, on Haiti's uh, uh, Political body, and especially, uh, it's it's an ongoing uh, sign of the, um, of the of the intervention of the foreign powers who caused this in the first place. So there's a there's an issue of of of, of symbol and of political moral involved here that an elected leader of a country should not be forced into exile by foreign powers and and then forced to remain there. Uh, secondly, his return to Haiti could be a very important uh, addition to a, a process of of national reconciliation of a. Of, of Haitians coming together in this catastrophic hour to forge new political alliances and new political and social and economic perspectives for going forward. He has an enormous contribution to, to make in that regard. And we're seeing, we're seeing already that voices uh, that uh, heretofore were perhaps not uh, so strong on this point, saying that, yes, this is part of the, uh, the political solution for the Haitian people. Let's remember he was elected by the overwhelming uh, people who took part in the national election of the year of the year 2000 and was uh, was was driven out of the country not not by the will of the Haitian people on the contrary he's he's adored uh, amongst Haiti's uh, poor poor majority but he became an enemy of uh, the United States and Canada and France because he wanted to take the country on the path of of social justice and progress Listeners can tune into last week's episode where we spoke to author Eve Engler on the same topic. Now, we'd like to ask you um, about the Friends of Haiti who met in Montreal a few days ago and their 10-year plan that maps out 
one reconstruction model for Haiti. So like your petition, they also pledged to respect Haitian sovereignty. Now, here's an interesting twist. The International Monetary Fund is involved, announcing a $100 million interest-free loan. Your comment on this plan? Well, um, first of all, what, what was decided in uh, Montreal was not very much. It was mostly intentions and, uh, and, 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 uh, and goodwill. Uh, sorry, not goodwill. Mostly intentions and, intentions and stated uh, political will. So we will see uh, uh, what actual aid and uh, and reconstruction will be given to Haiti. We will see to what extent Haiti's national sovereignty will be respected uh, through this process. We have every reason to think that these words are just are just window dressing, and that in fact the uh, the record on this has been uh, has been poor, and would suggest that we're going to see something different take place. So there's a great need for vigilance in all of the countries that were sitting around that table to ensure that these uh, vague uh, but nice-sounding uh, words and promises uh, go forward. There was uh, last April an international conference in Washington, sim- similar to this one, not in the same emergency circumstances, but uh, was a discussion to, uh, to uh, share and discuss and adopt ideas for uh, coming investment in Haiti and social and economic plan for the country. It was similar to what was being talked about at this uh, this uh, conference here. That is, um, you know, sweatshop labor to play an important role in Haiti. That Haiti's uh, uh, markets and its natural resources should be opened up to even easier penetration by foreign foreign capital. This has been a failed model for Haiti. But even those promises weren't kept at the 2009 conference. There was something close to a million dollars promised in aid and assistance. Sorry, one billion dollars in aid and assistance promised to the Haitian government. Something like 5% of that had been delivered by the time of the earthquake. So, so uh, one must be uh, totally, uh, totally suspect and, and disbelieving of promises. What will matter is what we really see happen on the ground. And the fact that there would be 30,000 uh, soldiers on Haitian soil today following what is not a military issue or a military disaster, but a humanitarian one, and following two weeks of failed uh, emergency aid relief in Haiti suggests that uh, a sharp political struggle is going to be required internationally on the part of those who are supportive of Haiti's uh, uh, sovereignty and political democracy to see any kind of progress brought to the country under under these conditions. And where can our listeners across the country go to sign your petition, and who has signed it so far? Well, we've got uh, thousands of signatories uh, from around the world because it's online and uh, from every corner of the world that are following events. That's pretty interesting to to, to see. So yes, your listeners can go to the website CanadaHaitiAction.ca and find that information, plus all of the latest news from, from Haiti and from the, the Solidarity and, uh, Movement internationally, and links to many other sources on, on Haiti that, uh, that uh, uh, listeners will find uh, informative. Our, um, our initial um, signatories with which we uh, uh, launched it include the likes of uh, Noam Chomsky of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, Peter Hallward, who's a author an important book on the Aristide years that was published in 2008, a uh, professor of philosophy in London, England, uh, Kevin Pina, a well-known filmmaker who's spent uh, ten, 10 or more years of his life in Haiti telling the story of the Haitian people's aspirations, uh, Pierre Labossiere of the Haiti Action Committee in San Francisco, um, a number of us across Canada who are part of the Canada-Haiti Action Network and, uh, and its affiliates and uh, Yes, growing numbers of signatories. We've really only begun to, to to start the process there because really our most important priority has been in the first couple of weeks is do whatever we can do to aid and assist the emergency relief effort 
and I want to um, direct your listeners' uh, attention to the website of the Canada Haiti Action Network, where you'll see the uh, petition that you can sign on to, and you can make copies and take it into your um, to your communities and into your social organizations. But equally importantly, look at the uh, appeal that we've we've issued for people to um, give financial donations to the the important uh, medical organizations in Haiti today that are that are saving lives. Uh, these include the Partners in Health, uh, Doctors Without Borders, and also the Cuban Medical uh, Mission that is in Haiti. You can you can uh, you can contribute financially to all of those and to others that we list on our website. And the, this is very very critical at this point, and remains and will remain so for months to come. Thank you very much for joining us today. and welcome to Alert Radio. In 2006, a young Montreal writer, Paul Jackson, went to Haiti to explore the history of Canada's involvement in Haitian affairs. There he met Villemont Derelsin, a remarkable young man from Cite Soleil who taught him to speak Creole in exchange for English. Villemont introduced him to people in his social network who shared their experiences with Jackson over four months. Women who worked for the foreign assembly plants, an orphanage with no funding, Christian and voodooist groups, Jackson, when he once had a few dollars, paid Villemont to finish high school. On January 25th, to his great relief, Jackson finally made contact with Villemont. Just a few days ago, Paul Jackson sent Canadian Dimension the notes he took from a long telephone conversation he had had with Villemont. We asked Paul to record those extraordinary notes for alert listeners. Villemont déraciné is never late for 5 o'clock mass on Tuesday evenings. However, on January the 12th, he had stopped to pick up a friend. Since she wasn't ready yet, he decided to wait for her. Those who had arrived early for church would be dead just a few minutes later. The événement, as it is now universally known in Port-au-Prince, began as a loud noise. At first, Villemont thought a passing bulldozer had dropped into a large pothole in front of the house. However, this noise started softly and grew in intensity. He found himself thrown to the right and to the left, and then he heard people outside yelling, Pitié, Pitié! He looked out the window and saw the buildings across the street swaying back and forth to the same rhythm that was tossing him around. Then it stopped, and everyone ran out of the house. The people who had escaped the swaying buildings assembled in the middle of the street. Then the earth started shaking again. All of a sudden, every large building around them fell to the ground, with all of the occupants still inside. The neighborhood was completely flattened in an instant. He left Delma 33, winding his way down to Delma 19, where he lives, or rather lived. The images that are now burned into his memory are of people caught in the doorways while trying to flee buildings that were caving in upon them. The action, their desperation to escape, was frozen in time as one leg or one arm only had made it to safety. When he arrived in Delma Dizneuf, he found more horrors. It had been a middle-class district in the Duvalier era, but was completely transformed over the last 30 years as waves of peasants arrived from the countryside, where the United States had undermined the agricultural base by dumping subsidized produce. Peasants squatted wherever they could, with men and women supporting whole families on salaries of under $2 a day in the American 
assembly plants that uh, President Jean-Claude Duvalier was welcoming to Port-au-Prince. But on January the 12th, Villemont witnessed a remarkable reversal. The poorest in the most desperate housing in Delma seem to have largely escaped with their lives. This, by the way, unfortunately is not the case with the slums that were built into the mountainside. Their poverty in Delma meant that there was literally less overhead. Meanwhile, the trappings of wealth literally trapped the wealthy. His rich neighbors, who lived in a five-story apartment complex on Rue Macandal, and normally drove the uh, shoeless pedestrians off the road with, without mercy, were now trapped under the rubble of their concrete residences. Villemont heard screams coming from the complex. The fifth story was now at the ground level, atop a pile of debris. Those who had lived on the top floor were alive and screaming for help, having fallen to the ground along with the top floor. Villemont says that he can't calculate how many of them, he and the other poor people from the neighborhood, freed from the rubble with their hands that night. He says that all of the poor know, know that the rich sustain themselves in Haiti through fraud, corruption, and exploitation. The poor, who know very well who profits from their suffering, save their lives. Each zone or neighborhood in the city has organized itself into a combite. This phenomenon, the combite, has been a part of Haitian culture since slavery and is a cooperative grouping that peasants brought with them to Port-au-Prince. When our mainstream news tells us that wealthy countries must now intervene because the Haitian state is incapable, they perhaps are unable to see what they don't know to look for. While they are in desperate need of supplies, poor Haitians know better than to wait for authorities to come and organize them. Haiti will only be rebuilt from the bottom up. Western powers must be discouraged in the firmest possible terms from imposing foreign structures, structures on Haiti and on Haitians. Anyway, the Haitians will never allow it. When I knew Villemont in Haiti, he, his waist measured 26 inches. He's 5 feet 10 inches tall. Last year... He was within a heartbeat of dying of tuberculosis. I could scarcely believe it when his friends told me that he had lost a lot of weight. I raised enough money here in Canada to pay for his antibiotics and x-rays, and only recently has his tuberculosis gone into remission. However, he is facing the événement with his health greatly compromised. He ate nothing for several days after the événement, saying he just wasn't hungry. Since then, he has eaten only small amounts of rice. The doctors, the doctor had told him to keep warm after the tuberculosis. Now he's sleeping under the stars. In his convite, this cooperative, there are five babies among 40 people. There are Protestants, Catholics, and Voodooists. Although almost all of the people are poor, there are some middle-class members who have retrieved the rice that they stocked in their homes and, and have shared it with the group. Without refrigeration, they didn't keep... Uh, meat or perishables. Nothing is left now. Villemont laughed at me when I, when I asked him uh, if they had been able to get vegetables. Meat is out of the question, although Villemont thinks that uh, the already healthy rat population in Port-au-Prince is profiting from the situation. The people in his combite are drinking water that is dripping from the pipes. He knows that the water will become dangerous to drink, but there is no alternative. They boil it. Trucks 
belonging to the Haitian elite and international organizations, seemingly full of supplies, fly past Delma 19 and Delma 33 without stopping. Villemont says the poor fall to the ground running after the trucks, pleading for help. On Friday morning, January the 22nd, American soldiers came by Delma 33. They told him that they had been on their way to Afghanistan when they were rerouted to Haiti. He spoke to them in English, telling them of the desperate condition of the people in his care and the need for basic supplies like medicine, food, and water. The soldiers took note and told him that they would return soon, but they never came back. He told me they lied to us. Why did, why did they have guns and not water? What are they doing here? Everyone is sleeping under the stars since the tents that were available went to those who fought most fiercely for them. Fortunately, it's the dry season, since, uh, since they can't take cover inside the buildings that would be even less stable as the ground around them absorbs water. They are left to pray that no rain falls. For the moment, they are taking care of each other. Thank you, Paul Jackson, for sharing your interview with Villemont d'Elsine. If you'd like to read further text on the conversation between Paul Jackson and Villemont d'Elsine, please go to www.canadiandimension.com. I'm Mitch Podolik, this is Music is the Weapon, and we're going to start today's show with a, a very neat working class song about a working class guy and a situation he found, and really this is a great song of hope. Here is June Tabor with The King of Rome. In the West End Derby lives a working man He says I can't fly But me pigeons can And when I set them free It's just like part of me Gets lifted up on shining wings Charlie Hudson's pigeon loft was down the yard Of a rented house in Brook Street Where life was hard But Charlie had a dream And in 1913 Charlie bred a pigeon that made his dreams come true There was going to be a champion's race from Italy We got out the maps, all that land and sea Charlie, you lose that bird But Charlie never heard He put it in a basket and sent it off to Rome On the day of the big race, a storm blew in A thousand birds were swept away and never seen again Charlie, we told you so Surely by now you know When you're living in the West End, there ain't many dreams come true Yeah, I know, but I had to try A man can crawl around or he can learn to fly And if you live round here The ground seems awful near 
Sometimes I need a lift from victory. I was off with my mates for a pint or two when I saw a wing flash up in the blue. Charlie, it's the king of Rome. Come back to his West End home. Come outside, quick! He's perched up on your roof. Come on down, Your Majesty. I knew you'd make it back to me. Come on down, my lonely one. You made me dream come true. In the west end of Derby lives a working man. He says I can't fly, but my pigeons can. And when I set them free, it's just like part of me gets lifted up on shining wings. That was June Tabor with the King of Rome. One of the things about folk music that I've noticed all almost all of my life is that it really has a, a movement built right into it. It, it. it it transmogrifies, and people sometimes call that the folk process. But involved in that is a lot of cross-fertilization between people very often, and one of the things that's happened in the United States is in the last 50 years has been the advance and development of a music form called bluegrass, which is a wonderful form of music played by lots of people all over North America. Now, there's a lot of Canadian bluegrass players. One of the things about the music, though, is an awful lot of it came from black musicians, and an awful lot of that fact got hidden. Often people's names got changed and... Um, Black musicians got forgotten and missed royalty payments and all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to play you one of the classic bluegrass songs. It's called Sitting on Top of the World. It was written by Lonnie Chapman, who was a member of the Mississippi Sheiks back in 1926. It's a beautiful song. First, I'm going to play it for you as a bluegrass song, and then I'm going to play it for you very close to the way it was written. Here is Seldom Seen with sitting on top of the world. Now she's gone and I don't worry, Lord. 
Cause all the summer and all the fall Just trying to find my little Lenore But now she's gone and I don't worry Lord, I'm sitting on top of the world Was there the spring, one summer day Just when she left me, she's gonna stay But now she's gone, and I don't worry All I'm sitting on top of the world And you come running, holding up your hands Can't get me a woman, quick as you can get a man And now you're gone, and I don't worry Lord, I'm sitting on top of the world She's gone, and I don't worry. Oh, I'm sitting on top of the world. Went to the station down in the yard. Gonna get me a freight train. Work done, got hard. But now she's gone, and I don't worry. Sitting on top of the world Those lonesome days They have gone by Why should you beg me Oh, say goodbye Well, now she's gone And I don't worry Cause I'm sitting on top of the world That was Jack White from White Stripe singing Sitting on Top of the World, Lonnie Chapman's classic song produced by T-Bone Burnett. And before that, the great Maryland bluegrass band seldom seen singing the same song. This is Mitch Podolik. I'll see you next week. And 
That is Alert Radio for January 28, 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Elby. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And, of course, Mitch Podolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out canadiandimension.com. <laughs>